Welcome to another edition of Jews on Film. My name is Daniel. I'm a video editor and documentary filmmaker, still a Jew. With me, as always, is Harry Ottensasser. Harry, how's it going? It's going pretty well. As always, I'm uh, Harry Ottensasser. I am an amateur podcaster and a film-loving Jew. And I'm really excited to be joined with you in person. This is you know, something the listeners might not realize, but we're not often together when we record these. And right. this is the first time that we have our full setup. We're together in your backyard and just... You know, just talking it out. The, the, the mics are going to pick up our conversation, but we're just like hashing it out like old buddies. That's it. I think, you know, you'll also hear uh, airplanes, squirrels, birds, all the things. But, you know, I feel like this is our sort of uh, get back moment. You know, this is our farewell concert because, you know, for those who are not aware, Harry is moving back to the East Coast. Really excited for you and, and for your... Can I say Jess's name? Sure. <laughs> I'm really excited for you and for Jess. You know, she's starting medical school, so that's really exciting to to kind of move on to that next phase in your lives. But the good news for all you listeners is that, you know, this is a medium we've been recording remotely, as we said at the top of this. So we're going to be continuing to do the podcast, maybe with a three-hour time difference. I assume I'll be up a little bit later than usual. But, that's okay. Uh, but season two is going to continue to chug along, and season three is coming out hopefully shortly after. So uh, stay tuned. Don't don't unsubscribe just yet. You know, no, no major changes from all this. Yeah, but we so we sort of figured like as a fitting sort of finale to our Seattle days that we do sort of a a backyard concert as it were as it were. Uh, and today we're going to be discussing Barry Levinson's film The Survivor, starring Ben Foster. So. Yeah, quite a movie, and it's also fitting that we're, you know, sort of finally breaking the seal on the Holocaust movie genre. I feel like a lot of Jewish film is inexorably, did I use that word correctly? I would say so. Okay, great. Inexorably tied to just the Holocaust genre. People think Schindler's List, and, uh, you know, this is not a film I had heard of. Well, mostly because it's a brand new film. But when I saw the publicity about it, I was like, oh, this is definitely something we should talk about. It's a, it's an interesting one for sure. Yeah, it really is. And I just want to jump on that point you were making about, you know, Holocaust films sort of being or Holocaust sort of being tied to, I think, a lot of aspects of Jewish identity and especially right. film. I'd say when we talk to people about this, it's an exercise I like to do quite often, which is I meet someone, talk to them about the podcast, and I'd say, what do you consider a Jewish film? Or, you know, usually I don't even have to ask. They kind of volunteer it unprompted. But uh, more often than not, I get, you know, Schindler's List, of course, but especially, you know, Holocaust uh, Holocaust film suggestions. I think a lot of people would say that those are kind of automatically. I mean, it's such a obviously it's such this it's such a traumatic, but also you know defining moment in in recent history of of the Jew of Jews of Jewish people. And you know, there's no avoiding it kind of in telling the full story of the Jews. So there have been plenty of Holocaust films made, and I think we will. This will probably not be the last one that we cover in this podcast. Yeah, but probably not. Yeah, I, I would say there's a couple more that uh, I actually think uh, I don't want to tease too far ahead. And I also don't know if we're going to be releasing this before or after that other one. But we do have another Holocaust film lined up for a little bit later in the season. So uh, I think we're going to get that out kind of soon. But it's just I, I just think it's a really interesting conversation to have about, you know, why is this such a part of our story? Why is this represented as one of the sort of tantamount, I guess, <clears throat> like depictions of Judaism on screen, why is that so tied to the Holocaust and, you know, how, and then we can get into the even larger questions, which I don't think we're fit to answer, but just, you know, how much can you actually represent that on screen and where does it, 
you know, how deep are you allowed to go as a filmmaker, you know, kind of at this point, you know, generations removed from the Holocaust in terms of depicting, you know, something so horrific that happened and might be a little bit heavy for the conversation we're going to have today. But I do think it's important to sort of point out that, you know, that's always a very challenging conversation. And some people wouldn't even watch a movie made about the, you know, the Holocaust. Yeah, I think it's interesting because both this film and the other film that you were teasing are not traditional Holocaust films in a sense that Jews, while they are, you know, certainly victims of these horrific atrocities, are, both films, you know, I'll just maybe spoiler alert for our future or past episode. We're talking about also Inglorious Bastards as one film that we're going to be covering is is one where the Jews are, you know, sort of fighting back and and while being victimized, certainly, you know, as that's part of the narrative, I think these are interesting because they depict Jews as, you know, pushing back against how the Germans were oppressing the Jews. So before we get too far into the film, could you hit us with that outdoor one last time IMDb summary, Harry, please? Sure thing. So uh, I've got a good one up here and it reads, post-World War II, Harry Haft is a boxer who fought fellow prisoners in the concentration camps to survive. Haunted by memories and guilt, he attempts to use high-profile fights against boxing legends like Rocky Marciano as a way to find his first love again. You know, I like that that summary. And I, I read a couple of them here. You know, there was another one that also kind of vaguely alluded to the way that he uses his fights to kind of find his long-lost love. Right. And if you've seen the film, and that, that's obviously a huge part of it. I'd say the whole second half is kind of... Not even the second half. I think throughout the film he's trying to use it. But if you've never seen the film... I find that to be a pretty confusing sentence. You know, what does that mean he's using his fights to find love again? Is it, you know, with fellow boxers? Is it, you know, like the means that he does use, which we'll obviously discuss when we're going through the film, I think is a little bit, uh, it makes sense with that. But I just thought it was a funny, you know, one liner that doesn't really give much if you don't know what you're, look, what you're looking at. Now, I don't know the answer to this question, but I'm wondering, is the love interest, uh, Leia, who is someone who he was in love with for a few months in their childhood, is that sort of plot device fabricated or is that part of the actual story? I'm curious because it certainly does lend the film a structure to it and it sort of adds to the element of he was a fighter, he's in the, in the Holocaust, he's now a fighter, but does that sort of drive the plot forward, I think? I'm wondering, it does, does she really exist in real life? Because, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like from the history that I've read about it, I've learned about his, you know, his his actual wife that again we'll get into later in the film that he marries this Miriam, and you know that that kind of history is recorded. But I don't know. It'd be interesting if that was just a sort of fabricated device as a sort of, you know, I guess part it's part of his emotional growth, kind of like clinging to someone he knew before the Holocaust. And you know, this is a spoiler for the end of the film. I know we haven't even started, but I guess the spoilers start That's here. Okay. But you know, learning to let go of that, learning to move on, learning to you know survive, which. You know, I think is a very intentional name for this film that could have been called a number of different things. You know, the Jewish boxer, Harry Half the Fighter. And uh, to call it the survivor, I think a lot of it is about his sort of coping with, you know, his trauma and learning to move on in a way that, you know, doesn't let go of the past, but, you know, still isn't held back by it. And I, let's go through the, 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 the film itself yeah, so that we can get up say, to that. But uh, there's, but a, I, there's yeah. a lot to unpack here. So, no you question. know, for sure, let's... Uh, Very Jewish film. Yeah, definitely. Let's... Uh, well, don't tease the end, you know. Don't tease your ratings. <laughs> but it is a Holocaust film, so we may come in heavy with those stars. Exactly. Uh, you know, this is a Barry Levinson film, and it's worth pointing out. He's done a number of other films, um, most notably like Diner and Rain Man, Things like that. And so The Survivor, I feel like, might be the first Holocaust film in his canon. I could be wrong on that. But it's also, you know, the true story of Harry Half, which was then turned into a book by his son, and then a graphic novel, and now adapted into a film. So it's really gotten the full adaptation treatment. 
you know, the film starts out with uh, Harry walking around on the beach in Georgia. We don't really have a lot of context as to why, but we flash back and flash forward uh, quite a number of times to tell a lot of parallel stories. Uh, you know, we have stories of Harry in the concentration camps. We have Harry in Brooklyn and then, you know, in Georgia. But, th you know, the, th the thing that, that uh, we first see is, is he, he loses a fight kind of in the modern day. And I think it's one of his sort of, it's in, in modern day, and I think it's one of his close to last fights. He didn't have too many, but, uh, you know, the thing that's sort of the inciting incident, as it were, to get the film started is is he, he works with uh, Peter Sarsgaard, he's a reporter, he's called Emery Anderson, and he makes a deal because he wants to find his ex-love, uh, Leah, and he thinks the best way to do that is to fight Rocky Marciano, which is a huge boxer at the time, and that sort of kicks things off. So it's a quest to fight someone sort of clearly outside of his pay grade or his weight class. But he thinks that, you know, Leah, his long lost love will uh, find him that way once the publicity's there. So after we get to the frame, we start with this opening scene and he has this fight and what he's trying to do, and this was kind of, I, you know, I, I joked about this when I was reading the IMDb summary, but his master plan is that if he can become a good enough boxer, get enough publicity, his name will be in the papers and eventually this, this character of Leah, who he, you know, knew before the Holocaust, will see his name and kind of seek him out. And, you know, where uh, Peter Sarsgaard character comes into the mix is he kind of uses that as a second avenue. This guy, Peter Sarsgaard actually doesn't want to cover, you know, his fight necessarily, but it's we need to know your story. He's called the, he's called like the, the boxer from the survivor of Auschwitz. The survivor of Auschwitz. That's so. kind of his persona as this uh, as a boxer. And this Peter Sarsgaard character is all interested, and he says, "I just want to tell your story." And it's a big deal because his story. You know, people obviously know that he survived the Holocaust, but how he actually survived Auschwitz is something that he's kind of kept very guarded his yes. entire career. His brother, who made it out of the camps with him, sort of his you know, best friend and someone who is confidant and, and is, is advising against sort of, you know, doing any sort of opening up because I think I, I can't possibly understand, but I think a lot of it, there's so much Holocaust trauma. And, and I think at the time, being that it was still a fresh wound, he just didn't want to talk about it. It's too traumatic. No question. And also, you know, and this is something we'll discover later throughout the film, you know, obviously the way that he had to survive and the, the complicated and very challenging decisions he had to make you know, understandably, I think his brother recognized that that might not be received as, you know, black and white, as maybe it was an obvious choice for him to sort of survive. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into all that very shortly. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, essentially what happens in his past life, the things that he doesn't want to talk about, in short, is, uh, you know, he's working in the yard with his friend, Jean. They're burying dead bodies, which is, uh, you know, incredibly tough thing to do. And, and Jean finds his I think it's his wife or something like that, or someone he knows in the dead body pile. And John begins to, you know, try to comfort this corpse. And, and, you know, the guard comes over and tries to almost like beat John up and kill him. But Harry inter intervenes and sort of starts beating up the guard. And it's at that point that we're introduced to Schneider, who's played by Billy Magnuson. And Schneider you know, long story short, takes Harry under his wing. And he's one of the guards. He's one of the Germans. Yeah, the Schneider guards. is one of the Nazi guards, and he takes him under his wing and begins to train him like a, as he says, like a wild animal, like a Jew animal is what they call him later in the film. But long story short, he ends up boxing other Jews as a way to entertain Nazi soldiers and to make Schneider a lot of money. Right. And then one of the caveats that we learn of these fights is that the winner, you know, Schneider kind of tells him like, Remember, Fight until one man can no longer get up. 
but what we learn is that outlast means actually to the death and Well, me, team. I said, it's a less man standing, Vince. Harry, who, I don't know if we're told if he was a trained fighter before, or if he just happened to have picked it up, yeah. you know, there, but he's clearly more powerful and more, despite having a very skinny form. And I think um, Ben Foster, who played him, I think he had to, like, lose a lot of weight for that role. And then when he plays him in the present time, he had to gain, I don't know what the 65 number 65 pounds. 65 pounds, yeah. So he's very, he's very skinny and he's very fragile, obviously, you know, in the camps, but still, you know, has a lot more muscle, is much stronger than a lot of these people. And, you know, through a, a kind of hard to watch montage, we kind of see him, you know, beat a couple of different, uh, you know, fellow inmates at, at this concentration camp. And uh, unfortunately, we see that they're all killed afterwards. And, you know, this is what we were referring to a couple minutes ago when we were saying just something that was so morally complicated and so difficult to wrap your head around. And, you know, the movie makes a point of of trying to help us understand that. You know, there's a scene later on where he talks about, like he gives a metaphor to, uh, where Harry gives a metaphor to one of his friends, just kind of like highlighting, like you're in this situation where you know that if you don't take it, you know, if you don't, if you don't kill this person that you're gonna die, you know, how can you decide what to do? Like, should you just give up your life? Should you just do what you need to survive? Because, you know, you don't know what's gonna happen otherwise. And it's just, it's very, very, very complicated, obviously. When the story eventually does get out, because he tell, he does meet with Schneider, because he thinks this is the best way to kind of get his name all public in the papers and possibly get it in front of Leia, he, he ultimately does tell the story. And, you know, we see when he when he returns to his community, when he walks through, you know, like the... Yeah, like the Polish-Jewish Union. Exactly, thank you, the Polish-Jewish Union. When he walks through that area later on, when Harry walks through there, after the story has come out, you see people start looking down at him, someone spits into his drink, like there's clearly this, you know, a whole generation that survived the Holocaust, you know, it, it's very, it's hard for us to judge them and try to understand, you know, what each of them felt, but clearly people felt comfortable moralizing kind of what they read about him in this in the story. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I think when you read an article about a Jewish boxer who killed other Jewish people for the enjoyment of Germans, you know, no I, it's understandable that they would feel not too great about a Jew walking into the bar, but I can't possibly say what I would do in a situation like that. It's so morally complex and, but I, I understand the reluctance. I don't think it comes so much from like not telling the story of the Holocaust, but more just like the fact that he killed other Jews with his bare hands and things like that. So, and now he's making a career as a boxer, obviously. And that's something that's a little bit, right. you know, hard to get behind when you're cheering for this person as this sort of, you know, Jewish hero in the community. That's this, you know, successful boxer. We didn't mention this, but he actually boxes with like a, a Magain David, like a Jewish star on his shorts. And, you know, like we said, he's called the survivor of Auschwitz, you know, right. the survivor. And like, he's this obvious like hero. And all of a sudden it's it's just like, you know, when you see the full reality of it, first of all, you understand why his character is so, you know, just sort of like overwrought with, you can tell from the beginning, this guilt and this trauma and this stress in the beginning, but I'm sure it changes everyone's relationship with who this person is and, you know, how they got to where they are right now. I think one thing, uh, just sort of a, a, a fun, you know, fact, the the film is like the historical periods and, and the, the attention to detail, I think, is super nice. One thing, there's a song in the Union of Polish Jews that they're singing that, uh, you know, his brother ends up uh, marrying a singer, uh, but she's singing the song Stable Bells. Have you heard that song before? No. Oh, okay. So I'll have to play for you and we could put it in the show notes, but there's a so-called, uh, there's this guy called So-Called and he has a, a cover of this song, but he uses like old records and things like that. So I think this is like a Yiddish standard.
so I really appreciated that sort of that song in the movie. Yeah, I, I, will, I wanted to have this conversation with you because I know that sometimes you get a little bit, you know, particular about the accuracy. You want them, you want to see some effort sometimes. Me? Oh, oh okay. I see what you're saying. Okay, <laughs> like go ahead. Like the accents, you know, and I, I paid attention to some of this. I mean, first of all, we spoke about like the union of Polish Jews that they go into and there's yeah. a lot of Yiddish yeah, 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 and there's yeah, yeah. a lot of, there's a, a, no, a number of keepers that were seen worn, you know, yarmulkes sure, that sure. are worn by, I remember like the Not bank clerk. Not by Harry. Not by Harry, but, and you can, you know, he, there is actually a very complicated, you know, relationship he has with his faith and with his sure. religion, which we'll definitely talk about. And, you know, why he doesn't, you know, after seeing what he saw and like many survivors of the Holocaust, he couldn't kind of bring himself to return to his faith. But there are a number of, of yarmulkes around, you know, there's, they throw some menorahs in the background of a couple of scenes. I, I kind of spotted that. those. Yep, yep. And the accents, I think his brother's accent kind of threw us off, you know? Well, yeah, I think he's actually like German, which is surprising is that like his accent to me sounded the least Did it sound credible. French to you? Because that's what it sounded to us. It, I was it was all life. over the place. And I was like, what is this accent? But, I don't know. But other than that one, which I think sure. was a little spotty, it does feel like they, they're they going for the accents. You know, sure, you hear sure, it. Sure, sure. I think there's definitely a lot of English. You know, this isn't a fully subtitled film. And, you know, you imagine that maybe a lot of these people might have assimilated they are in America. Maybe they're working on their sure. English. Sure. But I guess even in the camps, though, there's, that there's a lot of That part was a little weird because, like, true. there was a lot of German and there was a lot of Yiddish, but, like, why would. And I know it's like, okay. An American I, audience. I feel like if you're going to go subtitles, just go all the way and, like, have everybody speak German, have everybody speak Yiddish. Yeah. Like, what is the likelihood that Nazis in the camps were speaking English to Yiddish speaking Polish people? I'd say unlikely. Unlikely. And so, like,. I thought Billy Magnuson, who plays Schneider, his German accent was pretty good, but I could have just as easily seen him. Like, he was speaking German to other guards. Right. Why wouldn't he just speak German to the Yiddish-speaking po Anyway, that's just a little nitpicky thing. So, but, yeah, so um, it felt like they did their research. They sure. clearly knew what they were doing, but also, I think, you know, dropped the ball a little bit, maybe uh, caved in to do a little bit more English for their audience. They didn't want a fully subtitled, you know, half of the film, and... I uh, I wish they had committed all the way. Yeah, that, that's yeah. why I weigh in on that. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. And then, you know, we don't have to talk about it, but we could in terms of just like the actors in the film being Jewish themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, that that's a whole thing. But yeah, and I we'll mean, get to that at the end. We'll we get, get to, to that the at the end. Yeah, exactly. but let's but blaze let's... through the plot because it's like a, it's a two hour and ten minute film, so it is a bit a lot of a more commitment. to cover. We have a lot to cover. You know, I think a, a lot of it is just you know more matches, more training to get to Rocky Marciano. John Lanquizamo is, is an awesome uh, coach for Harry. He uh, plays Pepe. And as the film sort of forms up, we have, you know, Harry trying to get stronger and ready for this big fight with Rocky Marciano. He's also looking for Leah, his long lost love. And that's when we're introduced to Miriam, who's played by Vicky Creeps. She's from uh, The Phantom Thread. She was terrific in that movie. I think th things start to get in motion. We have a few, a few irons on the fire. You know, she's looking for Leah for him. They start to connect and you sort of feel that something's inevitably going to happen. She has also lost uh, somebody. She lost her fiance in the war. And at a certain point, they do sort of maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but she does eventually like forget about her husband and sort of understand that he's long gone. And she encourages Harry to, to move on as well. Um, but we're also interspersing and furthering the story in our flashbacks. Harry gets better as a boxer. He's trained by Schneider in the forest. They do running drills. And so it's sort of two parallels, right? We have him training as a Holocaust boxer and then him training for Rocky Marciano as well. Yeah. I think I could jump into this now because what you're talking about, those sort of training sequences. And, you know, I mentioned at the top a little bit about, you know, some of the, dis the discomfort with rendering Holocaust film, you know, and, and 
aspects of the Holocaust. And <clears throat> there's, there's obviously a lot of different schools of thought on this. You know, I, I, I wasn't going to, you know, drop this. I did happen to take one time a course on Holocaust cinema that by no means makes me the expert. All I'm saying is that... Well, I mean... All I'm saying is that it exposed me to different kinds of Holocaust cinema. And, you know, some people, if you say the words like Holocaust film and like comedy, they'd, they'd be shocked. But there are actually plenty of movies that did it and plenty of people that did it themselves. The filmmakers were survivors of the Holocaust or their parents were. And they take it from a very sort of tasteful place. And some people, you know, need that kind of, you know, humor, need to find comedy and it's just kind of move on from it. But, um, but when I was watching this film, I think one of the things that I found myself a little bit uncomfortable with, and this I, I didn't expect was, you know, you mentioned that there are these two parallel, you know, films we're kind of watching. There's the sort of present day where he's training for his fight against Rocky Marciano. And then there's this uh, other sequence, you know, back in the, in the Holocaust where it's actually filmed in black and white. And it right, takes right, on, right. you know, a certain style, very evocative of like a Schindler's List or a movie that has used, you know, black and white to render the Holocaust. And that's fine. And I think that's a way to sort of, you know, you know, date it a little bit and make it look a little bit sharper and like in some ways glamorize it less, which is kind of what I, I, if I am seeing a depiction of like the Holocaust of the concentration camps, I don't want it glamorized. And there were some moments I felt with this film and I, I thought of it because you were talking about that fighting sequence and it's like, you're watching a training montage and then worse when he's actually in like an actual fighting montage and he's like defeating people. And it's just like, you know, this shouldn't feel like I'm watching a new Rocky movie or like a new right, Creed right, movie. Right. And I, I found myself a little bit like, they were using music, you know, and I, I heard someone who say that like once you can't use any music when you're depicting the Holocaust because like, you know, again, it's just like you're using the manipulative tricks of cinema, the, the tricks that we love, you know, the, the tools that we use to evoke emotion. And you're taking something that is so traumatic and I guess I would say, you know, so emotional and just sort of fabricating some of that with like a real mismatched energy. And especially in the fighting sequence when you're watching him, you know, hurt these other Jews and, you know, that are going to be killed and you're watching it play out with this music and with this. And I guess the real time they do it is when he fights actually, it's like a German soldier or someone or another boxer. Oh, right, right, right. So I guess obviously that's not against the Jew, but even so it's like all of a sudden you forget you're in the middle of, you're watching a movie about the Holocaust and he's fighting this guy and it's very, you know, it's going round by round and he's like staying up and 30 rounds at one point. Yeah. And I just, the way that they like filmed it, I'll admit it, it wasn't my favorite. I was actually a little okay. bit uncomfortable with it. I think, you know, that paired with some of maybe like some of the tracking shots I noticed when we're going in there, it just, a lot of it felt a little too cinematic to me. And I don't think I'm not a, I don't think you can't do a Holocaust film. You know, we're doing plenty. And like we, we mentioned already, we're going to be doing Inglorious Bastards, which has its own kind of fun. And I think in a way that's a little bit more appropriate, the way that it takes on, you know, some of the darker aspects of the Holocaust. But I don't know. I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. But I just found myself when I was watching just a little bit uncomfortable. Like, don't forget what we're depicting. Like, if you're going to throw in like a naked, a naked, frail body, which they did a couple of times, that doesn't give you permission now, in my opinion, and not that they need permission, but that doesn't offset, I think, some of like the cinema like the cinema aspects of like you know just showing this sweeping montage and you know this like triumphant music when this man is fighting for his life in the holocaust but i want to hear your thoughts on that the flashback scenes to me were so impactful and i think i didn't notice it being too exploitative there were a couple scenes you know as we're going back and forth between modern day and, fl and flashback, he gets progressively better at boxing. There's two scenes that I wanted to call out. So, you know, it's Yom Kippur and they're sweeping up blood and someone is singing like Avinu Malkenu.
to me, that was not exploitative, but I feel like so it evoked so much emotion in me. Like I had chills. Like I agree. You know, Avinu Malkinu is this liturgical prayer that we sing on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and it's like the holiest day for the Jews. And to have him sort of boxing or like recovering from a fight, and then he goes into a bunk where a cantor is singing Avinu Malkinu, and he's pushing people aside to be with his brother. But it's so clear that everyone in the camp is kind of despising him because they know that eventually their their turn may come up and they may be subjected to fighting him to the death. I think the way that they juxtaposed those things was like really well done. And then there was, you know, later on, he fights his best friend, Jean, and he resists it at first. Like, I think they do a fairly good job of showing his discomfort with, with fighting, you know, especially with Jean, who he's, he, he doesn't want to fight, but you know, Schneider says to him, essentially, it's it's either you or him. What do you want to do? There's always a choice. That's something he also said in the movie. Him saying Kaddish as he's like choking out his friend and seeing the life leave his eyes is like, to me, yeah, the Kaddish is the prayer for the dead. And so, so seeing him after fighting him for a while, knocking him out and then pushing him to the ground and then saying Kaddish, just seeing those two things sort of juxtaposing the, the violence with that, I think was like so powerful. And to me, it didn't seem too exploitative. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think that Kaddish scene specifically was very jarring because if, you know, you recall in the scene, his friend, right, he says to him, he's like, I don't want to die by them. I'd rather you be the one to kill me, which is an impossible burden to be told, you know, by someone. And obviously that's only yeah, something yeah, that would happen in that environment. But his friend John, he tells him, he's like, I want you to kill me. And then what he does is after the fight, instead of letting, because most people that after they lost the fight, they were shot. Yeah. But in the case of John, you know, Harry actually kneels on his throat and, you know, chokes him out. And says Kaddish, you know, because Jean asks him to, he says, say, say Kaddish for me. And he actually recites it while he's still alive. It's heart-wrenching, heart-wrenching. Even saying it now, yeah, it's a really, it's a very evocative scene, no question. And it, what it's, as a sort of metaphor for what it's trying to, you know, the way that it sort yeah, of yeah. encompasses, I'd say, you know, this entire traumatic journey that he's been on and this whole, you know, black and white faith of like, he knows he's, in some ways he feels like he's doing the right thing. It's like his victim is telling him like, it's okay. Like he's giving him permission to kill him and that's maybe what he, maybe that's what Harry's telling himself. You know, it's like, okay, like they want it to come from me over them. They know that we're both trying to survive. And just to be faced with all that and then to have to say the Kaddish and really reckon with the death of his friend. Yeah, I, I, I think that was in particular a very powerful, quiet scene. The framing for this particular flashback is he's having maybe like nightmares on the couch or something like that. Or he was telling his, his wife at the time, Miriam. Right. You know, I think these scenes really set up for Harry, like who, why he is the man he is in current day, you know, so as we sort of progress and, and sort of getting back to the plot of it all, you know, he does eventually train up, he's, you know, jogging on the beach, he's hitting those sandbags and things like that. And, and he does fight Rocky Marciano. Right. And there, there, before that fight, there's a great sequence oh, where yeah. Danny DeVito actually shows up in the film. I think he was a producer on the film. Uh -huh. He plays then, Israel. Yes, he plays, exactly, he plays Charlie Goldman, but he reveals that his name is actually Israel, and it's a similar thing that happens with Harry, who we've been calling Harry this whole time, but in, maybe it's in that same scene, he reveals that his real name is Hertzko. Right. Right, which I think we actually had heard in some of the flashbacks, maybe. Some of the maybe. flashbacks from his brother, but, um, parents. Yeah. So they have this, this clear bond, you know, these two survivors, these two sort of that, like, assimilated and kind of pushed away their past to kind of, you know, 
become more American, so to speak. And, you know, Charlie, this Danny DeVito's character, he's actually the trainer for Rocky Marciano. Right. But he decides he's going to help, you know, he like pities, I think, Harry. And he just says, he see, he tells him himself, he goes, I'm not here to help you win. I'm here to help you just not look terrible when you lose. So he kind of like gives him, he's like, I'll give you two days of training. And they have this like, you know, this great training montage, which again, like, you know, feels a little bit rocky, feels a little bit. Sure, sure. But I, but I enjoyed that. I thought it was a great scene. And it has one of my favorite moments that like was, I think, very, you know, humorous, but also like very telling where, you know, they're eating like a dinner and like they, they have like some spread set up. They're eating like lunch. They're having like sandwiches or something. And someone says, you like the ham, Harry? Hmm? The ham. You're eating ham. That's okay. God doesn't pay that much attention to me anyway. Which is like a very, you know, like humorous, like, oh, whoops, I guess I didn't realize what I was doing. But also reflects where he is, you right, know, and right. where, where we learn later, because that's before we have a lot of the heavier scenes where he's, you know, with Miriam, which we'll get to where he's kind of like in the shul and, you know, in the synagogue and kind of reckoning with his relationship with it. But in that one line, he kind of says like, you know, God's God's kind of moved on from me. And he feels that way because of all of the trauma that he's seen, all of what the suffering that he's endured. And it's just... You know, how, how can you think about that afterwards? You know, it's, it's impossible to understand how people after the Holocaust felt about the relationship with, you know, religious Judaism and the ones that really came back to it. Like, it's an impossible task. I couldn't even imagine. People often respond to trauma, you know, in terms of religion, they either like cling to it. Right. Or they flee from it and sort of, you know, I think Harry is, is more the latter where he's sort of, he's culturally Jewish in this time, but, and is raising his kids. His son is having a bar mitzvah. I know we're skipping ahead, but like, right, right. That's it, later. It, it is a value that we're instilling, but not for Harry. He does finally face Rocky Marciano and, uh, he gets pummeled. Like he, he, I mean, he, he survives a bit. He, he, he has one a, great first round, which yeah. I, I read online, like it's actually true of like right. the actual fight that he like had a really good looking first round. And then I think was knocked out very right. shortly afterwards. And it also parallels his sort of one of his like more final fights that we alluded to earlier, where he's fighting someone who's clearly a lot larger than him and has had training in the camps. And he goes 30 rounds with that person. Nowadays, that you know, Rocky Marciano is able to defeat him, but he puts up a very good fight. And, and eventually he's overcome with some of the PTSD that he's been struggling right, with. And that right. kind of pulls him out of the fight. His longing for Leah and his desire to find her. I think this is the means to an end for him to find, right. you know, getting this fight, getting the word out there that he's interested in fighting, uh, I think you know, is helping him find Leah. So it's after this that he hangs up his trunk, so to speak, and he stops boxing. And, and let's go of his search for Leah, right? That's a big moment kind of after the fight where he says, she, She's dead. Who? Leah. How did you find out? What happened? I feel this uh, emptiness. It came over me. An emptiness? Yeah, suddenly, I'm in the ring and I feel she's gone. And this whole time, he's kind of just clung to this faith that she had survived. And right. there's a scene earlier where Miriam asks her, she's like, did you have any family? And he's like, no, they didn't survive, but Leah did. Like, I can just feel it. I can tell. And all of a sudden, there's actually a little bit of a switch, you know, after this fight. And something that, you know, I, we realized kind of later on is that I think when, when he eventually does meet Leah, which again, you know, spoiler, I know we've been jumping around with this plot like we often do. It's kind of become our trademark, but sort of towards the end of the film, when he actually does meet Leah, she talks about having read the article Emery had uh, published about his life, that she read it on the day of her wedding, I think, or the, the day, day before after her wedding. her wedding. The day after her wedding. 
and I don't know if the timeline syncs up or if it was like published around the time of this fight, but there is like this sort of poetic linking of those two moments where right. it feels like that moment at the end of the fight where he kind of says like, okay, like I, I think Leo's either dead or has moved on or he's just kind of like, let's go of her. Mm -hmm. It's probably around the time that she got married, which was a, uh, it felt like an intentional like choice. Passing ships in the night. Like they just missed each other. And exactly. like, I wonder, you know, what would have been had he fought Marky Marciano a day earlier. And exactly. Like, what would have been? Miriam, at this point, who had previously been helping him find Leah, now that he's given up boxing, he's given up his search for Leah, they develop romantic feelings for each other, and they do eventually get married. And that's when we kind of, like, sort of come in for a close. You know, we sort of skip ahead. He's married to Miriam. He has some kids. Uh, but he's still racked with flashback. You know, he runs a grocery store with her. Uh, but he's still got her in his heart and yeah, his mind. This was definitely the moment where post the fight and post the sort of linking up with Miriam, I had a feeling that the movie was nearing its end and then noticed that there were about like 40 minutes left. And, right, this, exactly. is where, and this is where they set up a whole third act that just kind of shows, I mean, that doesn't show up. It's building up to this Leah thing, but you're right. So we jump ahead. He has this relationship with Miriam and eventually there's this very powerful moment. You know, we've spoken about this concept of survival and he's a fighter and he has to stay up. You know, you talked about the 30 round fight that he has in the camp that he survives. Obviously he survives the Holocaust he survives all those fights and you know a lot of it is just like how can he you know just like remain like how can he like move on like his triumph you know unlike in Inglorious Bastards and I'm not sure if we're gonna have anything left to talk about that film because we're alluding to it too much here but <laughs> I'm sure we will where there's like an actual like you said like a fighting back against the Nazis and a sort of like revenge plot there his fighting back is just like continuing is surviving is like you know, starting a family. And that's kind of the conversation that he has. I think there's a scene right before he gets married to Miriam where his brother gets married and his right, brother right. like encourages him to do the same. And he says, I, I wrote down the line and he basically says, you know, why did you, like, because he's racked with this guilt, Harry, of like, why did he survive? Why didn't his friends, why didn't any of them, like, how could he have done that? Which is something that you've heard, that I've heard, you know, plenty of people have uh, have struggled with that out, out after the Holocaust. And one of the reasons his brother says is, you know, why did you survive if not to live? You know, if not to get married, if not to have a family. Right, and there, right. that kind of sets up this whole third act where it's like the next stage of his survival is, you know, continuing on. But obviously that doesn't go completely well because, you know, one thing you see when we flash forward a couple years later is that he's not necessarily in the best place with his wife. They're, they're definitely fighting. He's sleeping on the couch a yeah. little bit. His son, he's very, very hard on his son, you know, and obviously he's like, you, you could see that trauma that he's experienced. He's kind of putting it onto his son. He's training him to be a boxer when his son clearly doesn't want to be doing that and is seems a little bit young for it, but, you know, he, Harry rationalizes. He's 12 years old, yeah. He's 12 years old, and Harry rationalizes, like, how's he going to protect himself, like, just in case. And His wife says, protect himself from who? Exactly, but obviously Harry had this experience when he was very young. I actually think that I read he was, like, 16 or 17 yeah, when, yeah, yeah. when he, like, entered the camp, which is, you know, horrific, but he likes, like, I think that's what he's dealing with, that trauma of, like, well, just in case something happens, I need this person to be ready. And, right. you know, obviously he's he's still struggling a lot with his PTSD. And that's when I think he has one of the later dreams. I mean, I think that experience, the parents have had such trauma in their life and, and the kids sort of having to, to experience that through their parents' eyes. A lot of the last, you know, 40 minutes is kind of really where, like, the for me, a lot of the best conversations happened. Like the action scenes were one thing, not action, but the boxing th scenes were one thing. But like there was a really good chat uh, between Harris, his brother, and Harry, where he says something like to the effect of like, what's here is not here. You know, he's pointing to his heart and his mind and he just is not able to uh, articulate how he's feeling and just having a really tough time with it all. But he's not able to articulate that and say that. And then 
in the synagogue, like you were talking uh, between Miriam and Harry, they talk about God and religion. And he talks about how, you know, there was a baby who was born and like two hours after being born, the Nazis like took the baby and, you know, killed the baby. And so how could there be a God or something like that? And, and you know, it's a, it's a very hard experience. And I think him reckoning with it at the end of the film is like, for me, some of the stronger scenes, I think. Yeah. 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 No question. And that like, you know, picks up on a lot of threads that we had been talking about earlier about him, you know, his difficult relationship with faith of not wearing the keep of him eating the ham. And all of a sudden it comes to a head. And as much as this was, you know, a boxing movie and as much as this was the sort of love story, it's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's him about, you know, rationalizing his survivor being wrecked with the survivor's guilt and learning to find, you know, a reason and just a justification, I guess, you know, that he feels that he needs for his life. And Miriam is clearly, you know, she clearly has a stronger relationship with it. You know, she's much more comfortable in the synagogue and she's just, you know, like I, even when he says that story, it's easy to find God in a synagogue. But where was God when they threw that baby in the back of a truck? Oh, no. Why does this God ask so much of us? Sometimes I come here to ask questions. Do you get answers? Maybe sometimes. Now, this God doesn't answer me asking and in the meantime you can talk to me it's this very sort of you know this blind acceptance of faith that she clearly possesses that i'm not sure if by the end of it harry can really get to you know after everything that he's experienced and you know what you know what his experience was now remind me did miriam go through the holocaust it's unclear to me i don't remember i okay. don't remember explicitly they did i don't know yeah i don't know if it was called out but i feel like they they just seem like they're in different places, you know, regarding the Holocaust, obviously. But, uh, you know, I think as we're as we're kind of closing out the film, uh, you know, after these heavy conversations, the heavy scene with Jean that we kind of touched on earlier, he finally does meet Leah. So we're flashing right. forward ahead. Um, Emery, Emery finds him, the right. um, the writer, because when when Emery had been doing the story on him way back when, you know, he at some point, Harry explains that the reason he wants this publicity and wants to fight Rocky Marciano is to find, you know, his wife. Right. And then Emery says, well, like, I have a lot of connections all over the world. Like, what's her name? And he gives her a name. And, you know, Emery says that if you help me, you know, by interviewing me, because Emery was really interested in telling the story of the survivor of Auschwitz, you know, the boxing, you know, this boxing legend. He says, if you tell me your story, I'll try to get you this name. And we, you know, I think watching the movie, we kind of forget about that. And then all of a sudden in this flash forward, his kid is 12 years old. So clearly this is years later. Right. Emery finds him in his shop and says, you know, I'm a man of my word. I kept my promise. Here's like an address. And he, he hands him. I didn't him. think he would come through, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden he just shows up with an address. And, right. you know, Harry, who obviously is in a very difficult place in his marriage and a different place in his life. Three still, kids. Yeah. Yeah, still yeah. dealing with the trauma, you know, kind of like tells his family like spontaneously, we're going on a trip, we're going to Georgia and doesn't even tell them why. And it's only once they get there that right. Miriam says like, something's up, you found yeah. her. Yeah. She's like, what's the reason we're up? Like, are you going to see her? And he like, Harry doesn't really, you know, deny it. He kind of just like, you know, nods. And then she says, we'll be at the beach. If you want to come back to us, you know where we are. So he takes his son and they go find Leah. And Leah, you know, at this point has a husband and a family of her own. They have a nice talk out on the porch area. And it, it turns out that she has some disease that seems like it's terminal. So this is sort of his uh, last time seeing her. And they, you know, talk over there, talking Yiddish for most of the time about, you know, the good old days and how, uh, how, they, how much they missed each other and hard to believe that he's, you know, been pursuing her 
for longer than they like ever dated. They think they only for months. That's what she says. Yeah, for a few months, which is crazy to think about. But that love, you know, sustained him for so long and kept him surviving for so long. Um, I thought, you know, was really, you know, it's good to put his heart at rest. And it seemed like he was in much better spirits after having met Leah and come back to his family because the scene ultimately, the film ultimately closes out with him telling a really funny joke to him. I, thought, I also thought it was, I really thought it was a very nice button. You know, he comes back to the beach to be with Miriam and the family and he continues and concludes a joke that he had started years ago out on the, out on the boardwalk when they first met something to the effect of the young Jewish mother and her son walking on oh, the beach. Yeah. All of a sudden a wave comes out of the blue takes the boy out into the ocean. The, the young mother, she screams, God, what have you done? What, what have you done with my only son? Out of nowhere, another wave, throws the child back onto the beach. She holds him, she squeezes him, she kisses his head. She looks up to the sky and she says, he had a hat. They have a nice laugh at the end, and that's sort of where the film ends. And then just after that, there's one more scene where they're all singing God Bless America in Yiddish. Yeah. A performer is singing it. A performer is like, singing uh, it. At, at, I think his brother's wedding. It's yeah. like a flashback again. It's another time jump. But that's like the last thing we see. And I was wondering like sort of why that, why they chose that to be the last scene. It seems like kind of like you could have ended on the joke, but yeah. maybe it's just like a, America's great. Here's the end of the movie. Yeah, it's it's like this thread of like survival. I think it's this like embracing, you know, America, embracing God bless America, right? That I mean that that's But in Yiddish. In Yiddish, right. right. And I think it's like this, you know, we can embrace, we can move on without losing the past. We don't need to, you know, Jews who survived the Holocaust aren't fully assimilating. They don't need to abandon their past, but they have to carry their past with them as opposed to letting it kind of hold them back. And I think this that, is why I need you here, buddy. It's just, you know, there's on the fly. And I just think that that moment, you know, that he has like with Leah where he meets her, it gives him a closure, you know, because it lets him move on from that because he felt like I got the sense that the entire film, he felt like his only reason to survive and the only justification for his survival was to find her because that had kind of been his mission. And everything beyond that doesn't seem like. It all seems like a means to an end. I mean, obviously not quite his marriage to Miriam and his kids, because you can't imagine that, but it does feel like he's not fully invested there because he still has this mission. And I think seeing Leah and seeing her just happy and like reconnecting with her, it seems like that'll give him the closure. It's not going to cure him of his PTSD. It's not going to change the trajectory of his life, but it will give him the closure necessary to fully invest in his relationship with Miriam and his children. And you hopefully get the sense he's going to be kinder to his kids and just a little bit more invested in their uh, in their story. And he, he starts to tell his child the story of his past. You know, he, right, doesn't, right. he doesn't carry it as this like labor anymore. He turns it into, you know, let me bring that into the present with me. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a good way to like show that he's sort of moving on, but still carrying a lot of the stuff with him. You know, um, I think, you know, there's still scenes in the movie where after he's given up the notion of finding Leah, he marries Miriam on their wedding night. He's still experiencing like trauma from the Holocaust. So it's still something that's obviously still with him, but he's now able to put aside his search for Leah, be present with his family and try to cope with it as best he can. Yeah. 
that moment on the beach, I think, is also important because one of the things that, you know, we noticed, and when I say we, I meant I watched this with my wife a couple nights ago, so we, we had as many oh, conversations okay. about it. Good, good, good. Um, and one thing that I note that we noticed was there are a lot of scenes on the beach. There are a lot like, you know, obviously we have the frame that's it's from that beach in Georgia. So that's right, obviously right. the beginning and the end there. Mm -hmm. But when he's training, you know, you mentioned this when they're on Coney Island, like, well, he, when he meets with Emery, they're on Coney Island, they're on the boardwalk, they're hanging right, out right, by the right. beach. When he does his training later with Danny DeVito's character, they're on the beach. And yeah. the, I've been thinking, you know, ever since, you know, what is the relationship with the beach? You know, what is it about like the waves and being on the edge and being on the coast? And, you know, part of it, like you, when you were talking about the joke that he tells, like you said, it's like a joke about like a beach and like an ocean, like, oh, I guess so. And, you know, that's obviously just like a funny aside joke and it's like a nice poetic close. But obviously, if you're going to frame the entire sort of like final moments on this joke, there's going to be some significance there. And the joke, which we've played in full already, so, you know, you don't need to be reminded, but it's just about like, you know, asking more, right? The punchline is kind of like asking a lot from the beach. It's like you get something and it's like, how do you recognize what's important versus what you think you need, right? He has this like, cause it's like, oh, like, you know, you returned my son, you know, the ocean, but yeah, right, I had right, too. Right. And yeah, it's yeah, like, exactly. and it's played for humor. But I think part of what survival is in this movie, I've said it a number of times, but it's, it's all about, you know, how, how do we survive? What does that mean to survive? I think a big part of that is, you know, him learning what, is what he can live with and what's important to him. And I think the hat for him was this relationship with Leah and was clinging onto it. And this whole time, that's what he thinks he needs. And eventually he learns like he can, he's created a family, he's created a life, he's moved on. And that, that can be enough for him to survive. He doesn't need to get back to where he was before the war. Cause I think that's also part of what Leah represents. Like it was shocking to me when they, when we found out that they had dated for a couple of months, but it seems so formative to him. You exactly. Know? But it seems like he was clinging to who he was before he right, had to do right, all the right. fighting before he experienced that. It's forever and, changed. After and that. he wants to return to that. And I think what he's learning, you know, what the beach is, what this joke is about is kind of just like learning to let go of some of that past and you know like we've been saying you know move on don't forget about the past but don't let it kind of weigh you down don't dream of that time before don't let it and define you kind exactly of. and that's the only way to survive because surviving is just keep moving on and moving on and one more survive thing that I, I noted it's the very last line of the film like the sort of like post text you know on, on the screen right, is, right right it's not like you know he like sometimes you'll see in the movie like oh he went on to marry and have these kids, whatever. But here it said, you know, he has survived by his three children and his you six know, grandchildren, six grandchildren. Exactly. And it's just that survive. It's that continuation. It's that, you know, moving forward. Nice. And with that, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back with our review and ratings for the survivor by Barry Levinson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We're here to give our ratings and review of the film The Survivor by Barry Levinson starring Ben Foster. Harry, where to begin? I mean, you know, we, we rate our films, for those who are not familiar, we rate our films on a scale of one to five Jewish stars, taking into account things like Jewish content, Jewish themes. Is this film good for the Jews? And then, yeah, overall, just giving it on a one to five. You know, I think for me, there's a lot in here. It's fairly obvious that you know, the content is like very through the roof. You know, there's like a love story in there and there's the boxing piece, but it's all like factually accurate somewhat. You know, there's probably some artistic license in there, but the fact that it takes place in a concentration camp and then all the scenarios post-Holocaust are in Jewish neighborhoods and synagogues and Jewish unions and things like that, it it's high for me on, on those scales. I think a lot of the themes of, of loss and trauma and surviving and things like that 
all very Jewish things to me. So I think the only thing I would dock it on is just the love story element, but that's just to give it, I'll go like 4.75. You're giving like an individual score or is over, that, is that I think overall, I think wow. overall, I think it's very high, you know, wow. I mean, you know, uh, and as far as like, is this good for the Jews? Harry's like, you know, that Harry. <laughs> this Harry right here. <laughs> no, no. I think the Harry, I think the Harry, you know, is he like a model Jew? Is he a, a mensch of a Jew? I think, you know, he did the best he could given the circumstances. It was a tough situation to be in, as we mentioned earlier. And, you know, the fact that he is able to have a family and have a business and things like that, it's, I can't imagine how hard it would be. But yeah, I think I'll stick with my rating, 4.75. What about you, Harry? Um, uh, yeah, no, that, that's very high. I, I definitely want to talk this out a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so cast and crew, you know, Barry sure, Levinson, sure, sure. Jewish. Ben Foster, did you look that one up? I did look it up extensively. So in the press, they talk about how he was raised Jewish and his dad was Jewish and he had a bar, and, and he had a bar mitzvah Ben. But his mom is like Irish. Interesting. So, according to the Orthodox tradition, you know, technically not a Jew, but the fact that he was like raised Jewish and had a bar mitzvah and, right. you know, he considers himself Jewish. Exactly. So I'll give it to him. Uh, yeah. No, uh, this isn't disingenuous. This isn't like, you know, Jew face as we like to call it. No, like, this no. Is... I mean, there's other characters in the film. Vicky Creeps, who is not Jewish. Peter Sarsgaard, not Jewish. Link Wazamo is not supposed to be, so it's fine. Billy Magnuson plays a very convincing Nazi. Uh, so no need for him to be Jewish. But I think uh, his his brother in the film, Parrots, I'm not sure about his his Jewishness or not, but I think they talk about it a lot in press regarding, you know, the casting where, you know, people are embodying the role, so it's not crucial. The way that he was able to, you know, say Kaddish very accurately, his accent was pretty solid. I think, uh, you know, I know I'm encroaching on your ratings, but I thought we could... But I I'm can... happy this is filling in some of the numbers. I mean, 4.75, I'm going to need more explanation if I'm going to oh, get it. Oh, sure, a... sure, sure. No, but this is good. Yeah, I think I, I forgot about the cast and crew part, and I don't want to dock it too much because, like, overall the content, I forgot the cast and crew, honestly. So that was my bad. So maybe I'll go four and a half then. <laughs> okay. I'll revi All revisionist right. history. All right. But yeah, this is your time to shine. Harry, the floor is yours. Yeah, I, I agree with what you were saying on the content. You know, it's it's very visibly Jewish. There's so much Jewish iconography. You know, we talked about the menorahs. We talked about the yarmulkes. We talked about just going into the synagogues. And it's so, it, it felt like someone did their research, which I know we both always really appreciate when we're watching a film like this. You know, I think the accents were correct. I think some of the music, like you mentioned that song, you know, the, those Yiddish songs. There Mench was Stable of Bells. Mench Stable of Bells, thanks for the reminder. And, you know, that scene with Avina Malkenu and they're saying that in the concentration camp and you know, we, we said this at the beginning, but, you know, just the visual iconography of a, of a concentration camp of the Holocaust, like it is so, you know, inherent to whatever. It's so it's so tied to the Jewish, like to Judaism and how we define, you know, sort of 20, 21st century Judaism, you know, for, you know, unfortunately. But I think that it's undeniable there. And I think that this movie is always centering itself on, on that Jewishness. Like, obviously there are sequences in the boxing ring that could be a little bit of a boxing movie, but he's wearing his Jewish shorts. You know, he's his brand is he's the Jewish boxer. He's the survivor from Auschwitz. So I, I would go, you know, I, I think in terms of that, it's content, it's all the way Jewish. It's themes, you know, it's funny. If you asked me this after the first half of the film, I might've said like, maybe this is just a movie that looks Jewish, that has a Jewish surface, but like, it's about this guy, you know, who's like a fighter. He's a boxer. He's getting trained. He's trying to like fight this and he's trying to find this woman that he right, loves, right. which 
like obviously the framing and the context that sets that up, you know, that he's trying to find this woman that he lost because of his suffering in the Holocaust, because of his Jewishness necessarily makes it Jewish. But even so, I just felt like there's a little bit of a removal here. Like this is one of those movies that like is using, not using, but it's just employing its Jewishness as a sort of like on the surface, but like might not have such Jewish themes. But I, I agreed with you what you were saying earlier about the second half of the film just being having all the really powerful lines and having all the oh, really yeah. moving. The best dialogue. No question. And I think that that's where all of a sudden that comes in and like, you know, these questions I think of like of his faith and of survival and what that means and like these values of continuation and of starting a Jewish family and of, you know, just surviving, of like learning how to be in this world, of questioning his faith in God and what that means and how that can manifest in this world and whether God has forgotten about them and how he's like good enough. Like all of that felt like so in touch with, you know, questions of his faith, of his religion, of his Jewishness, of his cultural Jewishness, of his religious Jewishness, all of it. And I, I was really like, I, I was surprised by that because I really was anticipating in the beginning kind of leveling out my score with these themes, but it was really Jewish. I mean, you know, it, it's funny. It like doesn't, I mean, we said this, all Holocaust movies kind of feel like Jewish movies, but it doesn't feel like it was like a Yentl Frisco kid kind of like Jewish, but it's, I don't want to deny that it actually like was very Jewish and that they clearly, the filmmakers clearly did their research and they worked in these themes that I felt, you know, very closely connected to in some ways and obviously not in others. And I don't know. I thought it was pretty Jewish. Like, I think I'm also going to go four and a half. You Ooh, really, okay. you baited me into a high score. It's like, I, I was looking for, as I was ranting there, I was looking for a reason to kind of duck, <laughs> like deduct points, but I don't know. It actually was a pretty Jewish movie. I don't think it was a perfect movie and I'm not saying I enjoyed it fully as a film itself. Sure, and sure. I mentioned I still had a little bit of problem with the depiction of the concentration camps, but yeah, yeah. I don't think that's grounds to make it less, to give it points for being less Jewish, you know, and too sure. cinematic. I just think that's a tasteful thing. But as, in terms of its Jewishness, yeah, four and a half stars, I think. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's hard to separate the boxing piece from the Jewish piece, right? Like, he is a boxer in modern day because he was a boxer in the camps, and that's sort of what he knew to do. And, yeah. you know, I think you can't have one without the other. I think if we didn't have those flashbacks and he was just a Jewish boxer and we didn't even talk about his Holocaust background, maybe we could rank it lower. But they're so tied together. I'm going to use that word inexorably again because, you know, why not? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think... Put a definition in the show notes. For sure. For those who are not familiar, we'll put that in the show notes. It's one of those films. You didn't answer whether or not you think this film is good for the Jews, though. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I, I think it is, for sure. I think that any sort of exposure of the Holocaust is becoming, unfortunately, increasingly important in today's society for people so disconnected by it. So to even see it in some capacity, and this movie obviously covers one specific person's story and one element of it, but there's still a lot of... Uh, you know, just valuable, I think, information there for someone who's less familiar. So I think in that way, I would definitely encourage this film, you know, to people who are not Jewish, and I would hope that they see it. And I think as a character, you know, Harry has his flaws, but I think he's more complicated. Like, I think even by the end when he's at his worst and he's being, I think, somewhat abusive to his kid and a little bit ignoring, like, his wife, like, you know, an abusive turn in, in, in another way, I, I do think that... Um, I don't think that you're watching this and thinking, oh, wow, that's a bad look. Like, Jews are, like, bad, you know, God forbid. I think that you just have this, you, you understand this character, you understand his trauma. So I think in terms of showing, you know, a full-fledged version of a character, and, you know, like, I, I think I've spoken this to you. I don't remember if this was on mic or off mic, so maybe people have heard this before. But, you know, 
I've, I've read before that like all representation is good representation and people don't just want to be represented in terms of like show us being superheroes like some people just say show the bad people in our culture show the good people like in our society like just just seeing us on screen so I think I don't think he's a bad person I don't think he's a great person I think he's a very complicated person and just getting that exposure on screen I think it's, it's great for the Jews you know people should see that people should you know investigate some of the traumatized individuals at the end of the Holocaust so yeah I, I think this is good for the Jews for sure what about you? Yeah, I think so as well. Um, I think I mentioned, uh, you know, this was, it's a complex portrayal of Jews. It's not one dimensional, you know. Um, and I, I think ultimately, like you said, it's good to sort of see not just the Yentles and not just the Frisco kids or Blazing Saddles, you know, where it's just like pay, pay us and happiness and, you know, lots of food. There's like more to it yeah. than, you know, other episodes and other depictions we've talked about of Jews being, you know, you know, very eccentric and obsessed with food and comedy. Like, there's other parts to it. There's, like, different faces. Uh, for sure. So, yeah. That was our review of The Survivor. Harry, thanks for coming out to the backyard one final time for now. For now. Um, you know, see us at the local JCC maybe in the future. Who knows? <laughs> Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film. Subscribe to our podcast. Five stars on any platform that you can. And follow us up on TikTok. Any plugs before you go, Harry? Anything cooking? Today is Arab Shabbat, the Friday afternoon, so usually, you know, you cook something over Shabbat. Anything cooking? There's some there's some good meat I'm going to make, yeah. We've got some uh, some tenderloin that we had in the freezer Ooh. that we're going to uh, bust out. A free promotion for, again, not an ad, but for Bakar Meats. Okay. I think... Uh, Based out of based out of Florida now, right? But like, oh, is that right? Okay, they are. But someone someone like is from the community, maybe like one of the people. A Benzican, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, like okay. originally from Seattle, so Great. it's kind of local, even though I had all to right. ship it all the way from Florida. But uh, yeah, would recommend. All right, we got to get them as a sponsor of our podcast. Exactly. You know? Use promo code Jews on Film. Well, thanks for listening, and have a good one. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Daniel Zana and Harry Ottensaucer. Daniel Zana edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening. Bye.